This morning, we are going back to the book of Daniel. So uh, as you get your Bibles out, and I hope you have them with you, if, if perhaps you don't have a Bible or didn't bring one with you, there's one located there in the pew for you. And so let's turn to the book of Daniel. And this morning, we're going to be looking at chapter 1 or continuing to look at chapter 1. And finding here what the Lord would have for us this morning. If you remember last week, we took just a moment of time to talk about those opening couple of verses, uh, to set some precedent on who Daniel was, and really to kind of set the, the pace and the perspective of how we're going to be looking at the book of Daniel. And that the, the true hero of the book of Daniel is not Daniel himself, it's not his three other friends, but it's in fact the Lord himself. God is the hero of the book of Daniel, and all throughout this book, we see that being laid out from time to time. Now, we understand that Daniel and his friends do some courageous things, but all of that, again, is attributed to the power of God in their life. There's really something interesting that's pointed out there in those first couple of verses that we didn't have a chance to look at last week, and it's really the perspective that when it comes to history, uh, and, and Sinclair Ferguson points this out in his commentary on the book of Daniel, that there are really two views of history. One is secular history, and secular history is concerned with just the, the matter of facts of how things happen. And then there is biblical history, which is much more concerned with the view of history from, from God's perspective and not just the events that happen. And here in these opening two verses, what we see is that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, comes into Jerusalem and besieges it. There's a battle that is taking place here. There's a battle taking place between Babylon, which we could view maybe perhaps as the city of destruction, um, as John Bunyan would call it, and, and Jerusalem, the city of God, as Augustine would call one. So you have these two cities battling against each other. And it's a really a battle that we see fundamentally throughout the entirety of history. Satan is always attempting to battle against God and against God's people. These two cities could not have been more different. Different ideals, different loyalties, different masters. They were fundamentally opposed to one another. But Nebuchadnezzar comes in and he seizes Babylon and he carries off some of the vessels of the house of God. And, and this is really a picture of, of God's honor being sacrileged and destroyed there in the city of Jerusalem. Satan's purpose has always been to try to rob God of his glory. He still continues to do it today in so many different ways. And it seems as this moment in history, the city of God being besieged by the city of destruction, Babylon besieging Jerusalem, it seems that if this moment in history, at least from a secular perspective, is that Satan has won. The powers of darkness have won. But we must stop for just a moment and not look at this solely from the secular perspective, but look at it from the biblical one. And despite its devastating appearance, the fall of the city of Jerusalem is a fact, a fulfillment of God's promise that he made to Moses. I remind you once again of what God said in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and a glad heart, for the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve the enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst and nakedness and in lack of all things. And he will put an iron yoke on your neck until he has destroyed you. 
It shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout your land. And it shall besiege you in all your towns throughout your land, which the Lord your God has given you. If you're not careful to observe all the words of this law, which are written in this book, to fear this honored and awesome name, the Lord your God. The destruction of Jerusalem is an overwhelming picture of God's sovereignty in world events. It was not an accident that Nebuchadnezzar besieged Jerusalem. It was not an accident that he was able to besiege the city. It was not because of his great military prowess or strength. It was because God said, I'm going to give Jerusalem into your hands. And God did that because he had already promised the nation of Israel, if you serve me, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you reject me, if you turn to idols, then I will allow destruction and punishment to come upon your land. So from a secular perspective, the destruction of of Jerusalem was a horribly devastating thing. But from the biblical perspective, we see it as the complete and perfect fulfillment of God's promises. To quote Sinclair Ferguson again, he says, God is faithful to his word always, no matter what the consequences for himself or for his people. He is faithful in the blessings he sends, but he is no less faithful in chastisement and judgment. When we see God operating in blessings, it's easy for people to say, oh, look, here's the hand of the Lord. Here is God's faithfulness on a people. Here's God's blessings on these people. But brothers and sisters, as Dr. Ferguson points out here, God is no less faithful when he sends justice and chastisement upon people. That is his perfect work. And he's promised us. It's not that it comes as a surprise. Parents, you understand this. You have a child and you tell them, if you go and eat that cookie, you are going to get a spanking, right? You've told them. It should come as no surprise to them when they sneak into the kitchen and they dip their hand in the cookie jar and then they go out and they eat it. It should come as no surprise what's going to happen next. And as Christians, even still today, God has told us, live this way and know what it means to have blessing and peace and security in Christ. Live this way and know what it means to suffer under God's justice and punishment. In the midst of this story, we find Daniel and his friends. And today we're going to begin this discussion to discover the faithfulness of these young men in the midst of this great difficulty and trial. I just want you to put yourself in, in, in Daniel's shoes for just a moment. You're a young man, and they, most, most people estimate he was probably around 13, 14 years old when he was carried off into captivity in Babylon. But all he's known for those first 13 years is living in the city of Jerusalem, serving faithfully the Lord his God, being immersed in Jewish culture, being around family and friends in the entire city. And now suddenly he is snatched up and taken away to a completely different context where not only are his friends and family gone, but they worship a completely different God. The whole system is turned upside down, but they remain faithful. Daniel and his friends' faithfulness is related to us very early here in the book of Daniel in order that we can see that the results of their life throughout the rest of the book of Daniel were not an accident. Something is happening here in their earliest days in Babylon that sets the stage for the entirety of their time while they're there. We hear in the book of Hebrews about Daniel and his friends. Hebrews chapter 11 says, They quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, 
became mighty in war, put armies to fight, quenched the power of fire. He's talking about there those when they were put into the fiery furnace. He relays the, the story there of, of the heroic deeds of Daniel and his friends. But we must understand that the preparation for heroic acts are not instantaneous. Somebody doesn't just wake up one day and decide to be a hero. Heroic acts, faithfulness, true Christian faithfulness, develop over time. It develops from faithfulness in the events of the past. The trials of divine providence build character and strengthen us as we see the faithfulness of God in response to our obedience to Him. As difficulty comes, we trust in the Lord and God accomplishes His purposes and we move past that. And then when the next trial comes and we're tempted to doubt, we can look back and we can say, oh, wait, I remember when God did that for me before. It's the importance of the study of God's Word because all throughout these 66 books, we find that over and over again. We find trial, difficulty coming into someone's life. They trust in the Lord and God accomplishes His purposes and works it out for their good. And we can be encouraged by that. So heroicness and, and faithfulness is not just developed overnight, but it is, a, it is a lifelong event, growing and making and doing the things that God calls us to do in order to strengthen ourselves for that moment when it comes. Daniel could do what he did because he knew that nothing that happened was accidental. I was reminded of what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Paul is sitting in prison. Everybody would assume that he was discouraged, wanted to get out. He was, he was downtrodden because there he was in prison. But he writes to them and he says, I want you to know that my circumstances have turned out far greater than I could even hope. If you remember when we studied through the book of Philippians, he said over and over again, I'm able to accomplish more in prison than I even would be if I were free. Because Paul realized nothing happens by accident. Brothers and sisters, I want you to hear that, and I want you to say that to yourself this morning. Nothing in this life happens by accident. Everything comes to us through the hand and the providence of a divine and sovereign and loving God. And his word has promised that he will work all things for our good. So if you found your way there, the book of Daniel is stand, please, for the reading of God's word. We'll start in verse 3. This is the word of the Lord. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom there was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now among them were from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them, and to Daniel he assigned the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, 
I am afraid of my Lord the King who has appointed your food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. But Daniel said to the overseer, whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of our youth who are eating the king's choice food and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, their appearance seemed better and they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and wine they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. And as for these youth, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Then at the end of the days, which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in his realm. And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. You can be seated this morning. The first challenge that we see here for Daniel and the Hebrew boys is a purposed plan of Nebuchadnezzar. His plan is to re-educate them. His plan is to attempt to re-educate them into the life, the culture, and the mindset of Babylon. So this is our first point. There is a re-education that is attempted upon these young men, and it's found there in verses 3 through 7. You'll notice there in verse 3 that the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles. Now, Daniel himself was part of that royal lineage, and again, was a fulfillment of biblical prophecy. When God had spoken to the nation of Israel and told them that when this day came, when they would be carried up into captivity, he told the king, some of your own descendants will be carried away in this attack. Now, bringing in captives was typical for a king like Nebuchadnezzar. We find later on in the book of Daniel that Nebuchadnezzar was really an an egomaniac. He thought that he was the greatest in the world, and he was not afraid to tell you about it. He, He even declared, I myself have built all of this empire. I have built this great city of Babylon. Must be a politician thing. Uh, The purpose of all of this was to train them for the service of the king. The, The reason that these men would go in and attack these cities and attack these towns and take captives was to continue to build their empire. And so they would bring young men back, and they would pick the best of the best. They, they weren't picking the puniest of the lot. They looked out and said, who's the smartest? Who's the most fit? Who's the best looking? And we're going to take them back, and we're going to re-educate them into the ways of Babylon. Now, I'm going to quote Sinclair Ferguson a, a couple of times in this sermon this morning. Uh, as I was preparing to, uh, to teach this uh, through the book of Daniel, I asked several friends of mine, you know, what, what commentaries do you recommend on the book of Daniel? And Sinclair Ferguson's was always at the top of the list. And the more I study, the more I understand why. I would encourage you, if you want to know more, to pick up that book. But in his commentary, he points out that here in these verses, verses 3 through 7, we see four different ways that Nebuchadnezzar intends to shape and fashion these men. One is isolation, second is indoctrination, 
Three is compromise, and four is confusion. Let's start with the first one, isolation. Now, we've already mentioned this just a little bit, but the, the, how this happened was that he isolated these young men from everything that they knew. Remember, they're being carried out of Jerusalem, hundreds of miles away to Babylon. Now, for those of you in the room who have moved in your life, you know what this is like, right? You, you, you pack up all your stuff, all your belongings, put it all in a truck, move across town, move across country. And when you get there, unless you've already had family there present, you're starting all over. You have to find out where the grocery store is. You have to find out where the doctor's office is. You have to find out where the best places to eat are in town. You have to find a church to go to and, and get yourself plugged into. But the nice thing about today is, is that when you get there, you have all your stuff with you. You have a house to live in. You can pick up your phone and call your friends back home if you get lonely. You can go on the internet and look at reviews about restaurants and find out where the places to eat are. When Daniel arrived in Babylon, he had none of that. He didn't have his possessions. He didn't have his clothes. He had no way to contact home. He had his three friends with him, but that was it. They were completely removed from their families, their culture, their friends. And really, if we wanted to talk about it, one of the biggest things that they were being isolated from here was the worship of their God. And they would be continually reminded of this fact because Nebuchadnezzar had taken some of those vessels from the house of God and put them in the temple there in Babylon. Really in a sense of mockery to say, the God of the Israelites serves the God of Babylon. And so his vessels are now in the temple of Babylon. So they would be reminded of this fact on a constant basis. So they were being isolated and separated away. The second was indoctrination. As I said, Nebuchadnezzar selected only the best. The scripture tells us here that it was youth in whom there were no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligent, in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had the ability for serving him in the king's court. And he appointed them to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. From history, we learn that they would have been given a wide variety here of education. They would have been taught about agriculture, architecture, astrology, astronomy, law, mathematics, language, everything about the nation of Babylon they would have been instructed in. It would have been a, a, a full-fledged university-type setting. Why? Because they're only picking the best of the best. They're going to serve in the king's house. So they're going to get the best education that's out there. That's important for us to understand this because this, again, demonstrates to us what resolve and strength Daniel and his friends had to resist what Nebuchadnezzar was intending to do in them. He wanted to change everything about them to change them not from Jewish citizens, but to Babylonian citizens. And not to just Jewish men living in Babylon, but to full-fledged citizens of Babylon. I want you to notice that this passage tells us that it took three years for this process to happen. Now, from one perspective, we can think three years is a, is a long time. It's a long time to be there studying everything that they have to do. But on the other hand, I want you to consider the fact this morning that three years is a very short time. And three years was all it took for everyone else who had been carried into captivity alongside of Daniel and his friends to be thoroughly indoctrinated into the ways of Babylon. 
because we don't hear about anybody else. Now, we know that more than Daniel and his friends were carried into Babylon, but we don't hear anything about any of them. All we hear is about these four men, which leads us to assume, sadly, that the rest of them were carried away into this re-education camp of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar's purpose was not just to give these captives education. His purpose was not just to have wise men surrounding him. In fact, his his purpose was far more nefarious. What was Nebuchadnezzar's plan? Well, as one commentator put it, he had a long-term vision in the defeat of Jerusalem. He knew that he could not just overcome Jerusalem totally or any other nation just by military might. Because military might can change. Some of the greatest armies in the world have been defeated in certain battles as they've gone to the field. So Nebuchadnezzar knew that at any point in time, something could happen and they could be surprised by the military prowess of of Jerusalem. But he knew that if he could carry away enough people from Israel and indoctrinate them into the ways of Babylon and then send them back to Jerusalem, that he could have total victory. Because brothers and sisters, when we forget who we are, then we can be led astray by any wind and wave of doctrine. When we forget who we belong to, then we can be carried away. He knew that by giving these young men a taste of Babylon and its pleasures, that he could change their allegiances. His desire was to conform them in all ways, to assimilate them into culture, to adopt the ways and thoughts, and in a sense, to help them and to force them to forget their upbringing. I'm not trying to dive too much into the political realm this morning, but this is happening all around us in our culture. And I'm not talking about one political party or another. I could care less about that. But we see that our culture, this world, is attempting, perhaps more strongly than we've ever seen in in, in any of our lifetimes, to conform people to the ways of the city of destruction. And how does it do it? By, By offering all the things that could be laid before them. By offering them all of the things that makes life easy, which points us again now to the third point that not just through isolation and indoctrination, but through compromise. Look at verse 5. He said, The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank and appointed that they should be educated three years at the end they were to enter the king's personal service. It was not just enough for Nebuchadnezzar to indoctrinate them through education to teach them all the ways of Babylon, to try to force them to forget how life was in Jerusalem. There was also a call to compromise here. Now, you might ask the question, like how, how, how could food be a compromise for Daniel and his friends? Right? It's just, it's just food. But I want you to notice what the Scripture says there. It says a daily ration from the king's choice food, and from the wine which he drank. This would be like going to a Michelin 
star restaurant every single day. You got the best food in all of Babylon, the best wine in all of Babylon. But why? Because they're going to be presented with all these great things. And in a sense, basically what's happening here is an exchange is taking place. Here you can have all the riches of the land and all you have to do is serve me. You can have all the best food, all the best wine, and in exchange for that, all you have to do is just give your allegiance to me. One commentator said this, somebody in Nebuchadnezzar's palace knew enough about the human heart to see that most men have their price and that good times, comfort, self-esteem, and a position in society are usually a sufficient bid for a soul. And notice that's what we find here, right? You get, you get the best food, you get the best wine, and after three years of education, you get one of the highest political positions in the land. You're serving in the king's personal service. And all you got to do is just forget about that God back in Jerusalem. All you got to do is just forget about what the worship of God really looks like and just worship the gods of Babylon. All you got to do is just reject all those things that you were taught about false deities and false gods and just forget all of that and you can have all this laid before you. The subtleness of such temptation is not often easily seen. In fact, it was author John Steinbeck in the 20th century who who amazingly said this. He said, we now face the danger, which in the past has been the most destructive to the humans. He's talking about human societies. He says, success, plenty, comfort, and ever-increasing leisure. No dynamic people have ever survived these dangers. You look at the history of the world, and that's what you find. What is the downfall of Babylon? Great success, comfort, pleasure ever-increasing leisure. You can have all that you want. What was the downfall of Greece? What was the downfall of the Roman Empire? Every civilization, you see it taking place. But it's exactly how all these civilizations have encouraged people to come alongside of them and called them to compromise on their beliefs. Here's all these things that you can have if you'll just give your allegiance to us. But just as Daniel did, we must be keenly aware of the temptation of our age. We see this happening around us. The world tells us, just submit. Just do what things are told to you to do, and you can have all of this at your hand. Don't worry about following after God. Don't worry about what the Bible says. Look at all of these things that are laid here at your fingertips. You can have all the riches in the world. You can have all the money, all the fame, all the success, all the influence you want. The only thing you got to do is just forget about that God over there. So they were calling them to compromise. My friends, the danger of this cannot be overlooked or ignored. To look at it, it seems so simplistic. It's just food. It's just wine. It's just a little bit of compromise. But a little bit of compromise always leads us to a place of disobedience to God. So we've got to watch for it. So there was compromise, but finally there was confusion. I want you to notice verse 6 and 7. 
Now it says, now from among them were the sons of Judah, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. And to Daniel, he assigned the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Now these are the names that we're most familiar with when we talk about what happened here in Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we've heard them so many times. It's interesting that Daniel usually relates the name of Daniel, but his name was now Belshazzar. And each of these four men received a new name as part of this re-education process. Again, this was an attempt by Nebuchadnezzar, by his leadership, to remove them away from their past, to remove them away from their commitment to Jerusalem and to the God of Jerusalem. And why is this? Because every single one of their names, their original names, had a relation to God. Daniel's name meant God is my judge. Hananiah's name meant Jehovah is gracious. Mishael's name meant who is like God. And Azariah's name meant Jehovah helps. So very clearly, names that pointed back and echoed back to the true God, the God of the Israelites. But now their new names that they were given all related to the gods of Babylon. Belshazzar, Daniel's new name, meant treasurer of Baal. Shadrach, I am fearful of a god. Meshach, I am despised before my God. And Abednego, servant of Nebo. So the Nebuchadnezzar's plan was, we'll, we'll change their names so that that way, even in a subtle way. Now, now, we don't think about this a lot today. And some of you perhaps in the room today might know what your name means, but you don't go around thinking about it often. And you don't think about the friends you have who are named certain things. You don't really think about the meaning of their names. But in the time in which Daniel lived, names were very important. And people knew and understood what names meant. That's why it's always related to us in Scripture, because there were specific things that God was pointing out through the lives of individuals and what he named them or what they were named. So Daniel and his friends would have known each other's names, but also what their name meant. So in order to confuse them and to continue to draw them away from this, he said, not only are we going to bring you here, but we're going to change your name so that even in conversation, you're going to forget about that God back in Israel. Now, what's interesting about Daniel and his friends is that they truly lived as exiles, but as dual citizens. They lived in Babylon, but not of Babylon. And we find that because although they responded to their new Babylonian names, all throughout the book, you can see them referred to as those names, and they would respond to them when they needed to. We also understood that they retained their Hebrew and their biblical names and used them throughout the entirety of their life. How do we know that? We can go to Daniel chapter 5. This is several years in to Daniel's exile there. And in Daniel chapter 5, we find that Daniel, he says, whom the king named Belshazzar, he says, let Daniel now be summoned. And he was brought to, to declare the interpretation. It says, then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, are you that Daniel who is one of the exiles from Judah, whom my father, the king, brought from Judah. So even though his name had been changed, even those inside the king's house still remembered and knew and used Daniel's original name because they refused to relent on that. They refused to relent on who God had made them to be. They weren't going to be called to compromise. They weren't going to be called to be confused. They were going to stand firm on who God truly was. 
because they had a bigger goal in mind. Brothers and sisters, the way that we think about life has a correlation to the way that we live our life. Daniel and his friends resolved in themselves, we're going to see that in just a moment, resolved in himself that they were going to live a way that pleased God. Remember what Paul says in Romans chapter 12? He says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Notice what Paul says there. or Listen to what Paul says there. He's urging them to present their bodies a living and holy sacrifice. What that specifies there is that there is work to be done. The Christian life is not just one of sitting around and expecting God to do everything. In our Sunday school class this morning, we were talking about sanctification. And sanctification is not like the idea that you buy a puzzle and you set the box on the table and you stare at it for a while and you just hope the puzzle gets done. You have to open up the box. You have to take the puzzle out. You have to start putting it together. We understand from a Reformed perspective that sanctification, this process of growing in Christ, is a, is a synergistic process. It's God who enables it. It's God who does it. But the Scripture is very clear that as Christians, there is a work that is happening in our lives. And Daniel and his friends are refusing to be compromised, to be confused, to be carried away from who they know themselves to be. They're doing what Paul said here. They are not being conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewing of their mind. And there are so many ways, my friends, so many ways by which we can be so easily conformed to this world. We just look at what was pointed out here to us. Isolation. We really live in a world of isolation today. We think we're connected because we have cell phones and the internet, but we're far more isolated now than we were 30 years ago. Because we think we, we, we have replaced face-to-face communication with a text message. We've replaced sitting down and having a meal with somebody to discuss difficult things by just knocking out an email and sending it across the way. We've replaced sitting on the front porch and talking with our neighbors with sitting in front of the TV and watching the game because it's just so easy, and there's 500 channels. There's always something on. So we've been isolated. Nothing good ever happens in isolation for the, for the Christian. That's why the Scripture says, do not neglect the gathering of the body of Christ. Because you can't live the Christian life in isolation. So this world, we see, we are, we are being called to isolate ourselves as Christians. And we must watch for that. Secondly, indoctrination. This world is seeking to indoctrinate us in any shape, form, and fashion it can. What the world deems as Christianity anymore is, is a far cry from what true Christianity is. There are those who are popular teachers in the Christian realm 
both on a what might be deemed from a liberal or a conservative side as far as theologically goes, but so there's so many of them who are not teaching the truth of God's Word. We're being indoctrinated even by the very society we live in. Oh, you know, you, you can't say that this is sin anymore, right? Society has determined that this is no longer wrong. Society has changed its mind and its perspective on, on this thing, so now you can't say that that's wrong anymore. You have to follow the ways of culture. That's really what Nebuchadnezzar was attempting to do here with Daniel. Just adapt. Come along, and it'll all be easy for you. All be so easy for you. And what we see in indoctrination is it starts very subtly. At first, it's just like, you do this, and everything will go well for you. But it very quickly turns to you do this or it will go very bad for you. We see also in our culture compromise. We don't have to look very far, again, to see the world telling us as Christians that we should soften our stance on so many things. We even have people inside of the, of the church telling us that we should soften our stance on things. Our culture calls us to compromise because it tells us there are so many things that we can have if we'll just turn away. And as Christians, we can even be tempted to fall into this trap. We see the allure of, of success, right? We're promised a good job, great benefits, great pay. But our boss tells us, now listen, I, I know that you're a Christian, but if you're going to take this job, you know, you've got to cut down on all that chit-chat about that Jesus. Or you could build a great following, you know, all this new thing of the culture of, of, of being a, an influencer online, right? And you build a great audience, and all of a sudden somebody says, oh, you're a Christian, aren't you? You go to that, to that church over there? Well, I heard that church over there believes this. So you need to apologize to all your followers that you would even attend a church that believes something like that. We're called to compromise. And then we're called, oftentimes, in, even in this life, to confusion. Nobody's changing our names. But oftentimes we forget who we are in Christ. Because we have a new life in Him. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. We received Christ's righteousness in our lives. But oftentimes we forget who we are in him. And we're tempted to go back to the old person of who we were. In Babylon, David and, I mean, excuse me, Daniel and his friends faced a formidable enemy in Nebuchadnezzar. But ultimately it wasn't Nebuchadnezzar that Daniel and his friends were facing. It was Satan. The strong front that endeavored to conform them into the ways of the city destruction can only be overcome by a firm resolve to trust God and be obedient to Him. The only way we can overcome these things that the world will attempt to do to us, the only way that Daniel could overcome this, he says, I am going to make a decision to trust God and be obedient to Him. And you have to do that despite the consequences. You have to do that despite all the allures of pleasure. 
I don't think we understand how easy it would have been for Daniel and his friends to just have given over to Nebuchadnezzar. And they would have enjoyed a long and healthy and enjoyable life there in Babylon and all the pleasures of Babylon. But Daniel wasn't living for the moment. Daniel wasn't living for his 70 plus years here in Babylon. He was living for what was yet to come. Because he knew being faithful to God was far more important than the pleasure he could enjoy for a moment. But Daniel also knew that being faithful to God was far more important than even keeping his own life. And we must understand that, that our obedience to God, it is better to be obedient to God and die in the next minute than to live forever and be disobedient to God. Because he's deserving of all the praise, the honor, and the glory. He is the one who's worth it all. And this is the only thing that Daniel, that carried Daniel and his friends through. Now, we're out of time this week. But this week, I want you to read ahead because what we're going to see in verses 8 through 21 is this firm resolve that carried Daniel and his friends through. They made a decision. They made a commitment. And through that decision and commitment, it set the course of the rest of their life. And I say that to you this morning because perhaps you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. The first decision that you can make about Christ is to put your faith and trust in him. And that will set the course for the rest of your life. But perhaps you're this morning and you are a child of God, but you're uncertain about what this world holds. You're uncertain about what you need to do. This morning, you can make a firm resolve and a commitment to say, God, I'm going to do exactly what you've told me to do. I'm going to follow you in obedience to the very end, no matter what happens. And I promise you this morning, it will change the course of your life and for the better. Daniel and his friends know this. They set it as an example because they were willing to turn away from the pleasures of the world in order to know the pleasures of the one true God. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your instruction for us. Lord, I have been so encouraged in my own spirit, in my own heart, in my life, through this initial study so far through Daniel. Lord, to see your goodness and faithfulness in the lives of your people. To see your promises laid out, Lord, that, that you are not one who makes a promise and then, and, then, and then fails to bring it to accomplishment, but that you will always do what you said you would do, even in the midst of destruction and judgment or in the midst of blessing and prosperity. That you're never far from what is happening in the world, but you're always right there in the midst of it because all of it comes through your hand. And Lord, if we will remember and remind ourselves of this fact, Lord, we have nothing to fear. Daniel and his friends' courage came from a trust in your faithfulness. And Lord, if we look back at our lives, despite anything we've walked through, we can never point to a place where you were not faithful. Never. We can never point to a place in our lives where you were not faithful. And because we know who you are, 
we can say the same thing about the future. That there will never be a moment in this life where you are not faithful. And God, that gives us the hope and the strength and the power that we need to face whatever this world would bring against us. Father, what a joy it is to be your children. What a joy it is to know you. And Father, we ask all these things this morning in Jesus' precious name.